answer, respond to. And then um, the rest of them we've put back in the bowl here. And then so when we finish the ones we've kind of pulled out, then uh, if there's still time, we'll put our hands in the bowl and, and uh, do it kind of randomly that way. And uh, I'm going to start. And, um, and the, the, there's one here about, um, it says, non-self is very difficult for me to experience. Any tips, thoughts? And um, there's a lot that can be said about the teaching of anatta. And to try to make it a little bit simple, uh, especially in relationship to vipassana practice, um, the, um, um, when the Buddha first gave the discourse on this topic of anatta, it was very clearly that he was talking about um, that not-self characterizes all the aspects, all the, all the ways in which we can understand the self, our, ourselves. So like our body has a characteristic of not being any self there. Our feelings, you can't find a self in feelings, in perceptions, in mental formations, in consciousness. Not self was always a characteristic of things that you could experience. You could experience your body, you could experience your perceptions, your feelings, your mental formations. Not self was not meant to be something that's kind of you know, disembodied or some reality that's out there, you know, I'll discover the true not-self somewhere distant. But rather, like in Zen, they talk about form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Uh, it's um, uh, not-self is a characteristic of actual things you can experience. So in terms of vipassana practice, uh, the way to discover or realize or have some deep perception of anatta is by paying very careful attention to your direct experience to what's actually happening moment by moment. And as you pay attention to your direct experience, at some point you don't have to be questioning or analyzing it philosophically. Uh, you don't have to even believe in, in not-self or non-self. Or, it doesn't really matter. What matters is you, uh, what you, not what you believe, but rather what you see and what you perceive. And so um, the way to, the route to the experience of not-self is by actually seeing, looking very carefully, very precisely what is this experience I'm having right now? And in its own way, at some point you go, oh, I can't find any self in this experience. But that kind of happens on its own. It's like revelation. So don't worry about it until it happens. Just, just look and see what's there. What did the Buddha teach about mindfulness of dreams, skillful use of powerful prophetic dreams? Anything else than awareness of thought or memory? There are in the Buddhist myths a few important prophetic dreams which show that dreams can archetypally kind of portend the way things will unfold. There are lessons that one gains from dreams, if you will, because they show parts of our experience that are not necessarily so conscious. But most importantly, um, dreams are practiced with in the same way that thoughts and waking experience is practiced with. So in the Buddhist tradition, there is a practice of dream yoga or lucid dreaming in which you 
become very still and quiet on retreat or concentrated, and then you make a resolve over and over that I will be aware in my dreams, over and over. And at some point, when you have made that resolve enough and are concentrated enough, you start to realize in the middle of your dreams that you're dreaming. It's called lucid dreaming. It's also common on retreats without intentionally doing such a practice. First, that dreams become very powerful. It's as if the clearing away of the ordinary thoughts of our life and so forth as we do during the day and the development of mindfulness carries over at night. So we're already a bit more aware in our sleep and very deep things can show themselves, sometimes nightmares, sometimes pleasant dreams, but dreams become more active commonly on retreat. And the instruction that we give to people is to try to be aware as you lie down and fall asleep, feel your breath. And sometimes it will happen that you can actually become aware of noticing your breath and falling asleep and beginning to dream all as if you were sitting in meditation, quite spontaneously. The root instruction in dream yoga, as it's called, or dream um, practice, is to do vipassana in your dreams, to realize, oh, this is a dream, seeing, imagining, hearing, sensing, just as you're doing here. And then when you wake up from the dream, to realize that another form of the dream, which is our collective daily dream, is happening. And you begin to notice the change from one state to another to another as all arising and passing away. So what you're doing actually is the preparation for working with dreams in the deepest way to see their innate impermanence and selflessness and emptiness as well. Speaking of dreams, this, book, this uh, question is about being with stories. I notice that there can be one predominant emotion that can surface over and over again only with a different story attached. Even in the midst of the new story and emotion, I see that I could, if I chose, easily switch stories and continue on with the emotion. So what is needed here? I think it would be to drop the story and just stay with the experience. But if I do that, then without the story, there's really no experience, emotion for long. What is happening that causes the repeat of experience with different stories? So to drop the story and stay with the experience. One of the things that Uh, One of the ways to talk about this is to talk about dropping out of the story into the the sensation. One of the things that becomes clear is that if we think about the story or think about the emotion, it very quickly takes us into the past or into the future. Have you noticed this? So the possibility is 
in the moment to feel the experience of the story in the breath and the sensations in the body, which, as we've said a couple of times and could never be said enough, is always happening now. So the way the story can be unraveled or the way we can perhaps move along the unfolding of the story, of the emotional knot or the story of our lives that lives in the body, is to stay with it in the moment-to-moment unfolding at this level, at the body level, at the sensation level. The alternative is to think about it, to analyze it, but to come back to it in the moment, the most reliable way to come back and to stay with it enough so that it actually can begin to unravel, to unfold, seems to be to stay with the direct experience in in the body, in the sensation. So the question the questioner says, there doesn't seem to be, it doesn't keep going. (laughs) Right. It changes, and it's possible to stay with it and allow it to change, and to allow allow it to unravel, to allow it to unfold um, as much as is possible. It does have the possibility of dissolving. Sometimes it becomes more intense. Sometimes it becomes less intense. Sometimes it becomes more knotted or less. And it's not a one-time journey. There were two questions on karma. What if there seems to be a lot of bad karma in your life? Can you turn it around? Could you please explain the concept of karma in a way that makes it clear how our own actions create our future happiness and unhappiness? Um, We could go on for a couple of hours to talk about karma. So to just spend a couple of minutes, um, um, I think sometimes there's a confusion uh, around what karma means. Uh, often in a negative, or you know, that people think that if they get sick, it's because of their bad karma. Somehow they're personally responsible. That all the bad things that happen in your life are because of your bad karma. And the Buddha specifically said that uh, all the things that happen to you are not the result of karma. It might be the result of cause and effect. Everything that we know of is a cause and effect chain of events that bring it up. But karma, as the Buddha talked about it, is a subset 
of the bigger chain of causality. So things happen, uh, you know, just because things happen. Um, but some things happen because of the karmic connection. And uh, so-called bad karma is that uh, 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 is a result of those intentions, those motivated acts that puts a negative or unhealthy spin on our life energy or our life direction. The good karma, uh, creating good karma, is, is acting on those motivations, which creates a healthy spin for our lives. And I like the idea of healthy and unhealthy because it removes some of the idea of of morality or you know good or bad or something. And um, so certainly some things that we do creates a kind of unhealthy spin that follows us down through down through life. Uh, for example, it follows us in terms of habit, habit formation. If you do the same thing over and over again, or um, sometimes it follows us in the terms of memories that we you know sometimes uh, after sitting on retreat for a while, memories from 20 or 30 years ago might pop up in our head that we haven't thought about since then. And so things come back to us in terms of memories. And um, things come back to us or follow along with us in our body, the body tension that we carry. Certain motivated acts involve certain activity of the body and we hold it that way. And I'm sure there's unseen ways that our, our motivated actions uh, you know, puts a spin on our lives that follows through, down through the down through time, and sometimes the fruit of that spin is not evident until many years later. Some people would say not until sometimes in the next lifetime or future lifetimes. The whole teaching of karma, as I understand it, is not meant to be taken as a metaphysical teaching about uh, rebirth or past lives and do you believe in past lives or not. But it's really one of the other ways, a little more sophisticated way, that the Buddha was saying. Pay attention to the present moment. The present moment is so key to the spiritual life because it's in the present moment that we can take some responsibility for the, uh, the motivation of the actions that we, we act on, we live on, the motivations we act on. And if you act on those motivations which create an unhealthy spin, then disease will arise. If you, create, if you act on those motivations that are healthy, then you create health. At least you create spiritual health. You can't always pay, create um, physical health. So we pay, pay careful attention to the intentions and motivations as they occur in the present moment. And as we do that, we learn that we can um, uh, the past karma that we're the recipients of, that so we've done something unhealthy in the past and it affects us in the present, then um, what uh, the present moment can show us is how do we respond to that event. Do we create more unhealthy karma? Do we create healthy karma? Or do we step off the karma game? Step, you know, and, and respond in a way that neither creates good karma or, or, or bad karma, healthy or unhealthy, but rather we find ourselves free from the whole experience. So one quick example, if I have, um, maybe I've, um, I've lied, and mostly I've forgotten about the lie, but then something happens and 10 years later I realize, oh, I lied. And then I feel the pain of that. That's, you know, the, it's come to fruition, the unhealthy karma of 10 years ago in the recognition and the pain of, oh, I've lied. And then how I respond to that then is whether, is, is a key thing. Do I respond to that by berating myself and criticizing myself for being such a terrible liar? At least I should be a good liar. 
or something, or, or you know, keep adding to the suffering, or do I, or do I um, find some way to kind of turn that around and learn from it? Oh, that was unhealthy. I saw how it was unhealthy. I think now I'll commit myself to being more uh, honest in the future. So we create good karma, um, or healthy karma. So again, the, the whole teaching of karma is meant to focus the attention into the present moment so that we can learn to pay careful attention to that aspect of the present moment which, ha- which has to do with our intention. There was a, a whole pile of questions about practice in daily life and engage Buddhism and social justice most of which we're going to leave for the week after next, for the last week of the retreat, because the questions are very important and they fit better as we get closer to the last part of the retreat. Um, And there was a question in there about, will we leave out book lists and things like that, which we will do. Uh, Related to it, but perhaps a little closer to where we are now, Um, or can be connected, these two questions. How can one continue living and practicing non-attachment in a world where you need money to survive? Or maybe you could elaborate on the idea of letting go. Does this mean we should release desires of having spouses, children, careers? Is there a difference between wise letting go and unwise letting go? Sometimes a better translation than the word letting go, and you know this in your own practice, is letting be. When we sit and walk and pay attention, various things come, painful and pleasant, we may be entangled or caught in them. Sometimes we translate the letting go as, in an unfortunate way, as a kind of aversion. Well, I want to let go of that thought because it's unpleasant or I'm caught in it, or I want to let go of these sensations so I can get back to something more pleasant, when in fact the mindfulness itself is an invitation to let things be, to let them rise and fall as they will in the space of courteous attention. It is the same here as we learn this as when you leave the retreat. Things will come to you. I left the retreat at the end of February and A day or two later, I was out shopping at the supermarket and somebody was really upset and difficult in the line that I was in at the supermarket and so forth. And um, I could have gotten upset. That would have been one side. I could have ignored it, tried to push it away. That was another. But I found myself quite present because that's what I've been doing. That's what you've been doing for a month. And I felt it and I also felt the pain that was there. And so what arose in the space of letting be, which is natural for each of us, was a sense of compassion for the pain of that person. And as I said this morning, we're each in a place over these days that gets more sensitive and more aware of the kind of pain that may have been done to us or we do to ourselves or what we might do to another. And that sensitivity carries... As we learn to let be, to be mindful, 
then what remains, instead of as much grasping and reactivity, is actually a sensitivity, a kind of respect, a natural compassion. And then, following that, well, what about releasing desires of having spouse, children, careers, and so forth? The Buddha offered two different sets of teachings or paths quite explicitly, the monastic path for those who were drawn to it, to live quite simply and renounce the world and ordinary ways be a monk or a nun, and the household path, and many, many teachings for householders. And the instructions he gave to householders were, if you choose this path and follow it, rather than clinging with greed and desire and fear and aversion, enter this path with compassion, with an ability to love, with dedication, with an ability to let go rather than, rather than clinging. And when you do it, do it wisely. If you have a career, do it fully. If you have a relationship, a spouse or children, then love them and take care of them with compassion and attention, just as you would any other part of your practice. The more greed you bring to it, the more you'll suffer. The more hatred you bring, the more you'll suffer. The more you're able to be present and mindful, to let things be and respond from compassion, whether it's on the retreat or whether it's back as a householder, if you choose that path, the freer you will be and the freer that others will be. So the very practice that we do here is the preparation as well for presence in relationship, for presence in our work, for presence in the world that needs a heart that's peaceful and not caught up in the forces of greed and hatred and fear. Who won the Oscars? (laughs) Eugene. Eugene. Last night. We decided not to tell you. (laughs) Sit with it. (laughs) Don't let go of it, right? Right, let go of it. (laughs) Notice your reaction. Tell us about your lives, families, and children. Are they also Buddhists? <laughs> um, well, my ten-and-a-half-year-old has been carried along to family retreats since she was born. And it wasn't until this year that she really commented on any of it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> seems like this year she uh, came to her own relationship with the Dharma. And... Um, I noticed this when it turns out the 10-year-old class was doing the Eightfold Path, and she came in and she said, I have to know what wise action is because I have to, take, I have to carry the wise action banner, and I have to say what it is. And then I said, well, what do you think it is? And she said, well, I think that it's being kind and helpful. And I started to say, yes, but there's more to it. And then I thought, 
wow, I think she's got it. (laughs) I've always thought that if I could teach the Dharma in a way that children would understand that it would be trustworthy. Um, Anyway, I don't think my daughter would call herself a Buddhist. Um, But then I don't really call myself a Buddhist either. My favorite Dharma talk was um, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. It was one of Joseph's early talks. It was when Joseph was in his Taoist period. He said, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, he taught the truth, more or less. That was, the, that was the gist of that talk. My daughter uh, looks at me and particularly pays attention to when it seems that I'm not following <laughs> the Buddhist teachings. And she'll raise an eyebrow and say, hmm, Dad, Buddhist, huh? You know, or she'll say, Dad, when I'm, you know, having a hard time, Dad, I think it's time for you to go and meditate now. You know? <laughs> so they have a kind of wisdom that, it's uh, <laughs> great. I haven't, um, well, I haven't um, had any real intention to turn my son sons into being Buddhists. Um, and uh, it would be nice to offer them some tools of practice that they could use if they need it, if they need it <laughs> when they get older. And uh, so um, maybe at some point they'll pick up on some of these things and try them out for practice. But it never really interested me to, that they become Buddhists. However, what I've noticed is that, you know, I'm, I'm in the world of Buddhism all the time. And my son knows that I'm a Buddhist teacher and I have a center and I do all this stuff. I come and do Buddhist birthday celebration at his school. He really wanted me to come to kindergarten and do a Buddhist birthday celebration there. And, and um, he's kind of proud of it. And, and what I'm noticing is that, uh, I hope, it, it seems that um, it's, it's very help, healthy for his identity to somehow, he's coming to this idea that he's a Buddhist. And, um, and his other kids in school are Christian and uh, Jews and Muslim in his school. And, and somehow, I think he helps, it helps him to find where he is in life, to have this kind of identity. And for now, it seems just helpful and I think healthy. And so I'll just go along with it. <laughs> and, um, It'll change. <laughs> so um, there's, there was a series of questions about enlightenment and no questions about compassionment. So, well, it's the way it goes. <laughs> and um, as if enlightenment is more important. But um, the... Um, I had a Zen teacher once who um, I asked, uh, how do you know if someone's enlightened? And he said, oh, you have to watch them for a long time. And then um, if they're helpful to other people, then uh, maybe so. So I thought that was a very interesting answer to the question. You know, is it, are they helpful to other people? I don't know if it's the right answer, but it was an inspiring answer for me. Um, so one question is, um, the suttas 
are packed with people who achieved enlightenment even after the Buddha's death. Why is it today we never hear the lion's roar? The lion's roar is when someone stands up and with great confidence says, um, basically says, I am enlightened. <laughs> Come on, Gil. That wasn't very convincing. <laughs> roar. <laughs> there are different styles. <laughs> I let him roar. <laughs> the, um, you know, if you go to th- places like Thailand and meet a lot of the really uh, mature, realized uh, teachers, it's quite something to see how different their personalities are. When I first became a Zen student, I thought I had to be um, just like Ed Brown. <laughs> I, I thought that was the point. <laughs> And then later I met other Zen priests, and then I realized, oh, they're not like Ed Brown. Maybe I don't have to be. <laughs> and so um, you, see, you, you see that in these uh, very mature teachers in Thailand. Uh, uh, Mahabua is like, you know, is it, is it, in his youth was kind of like a boxer, and he's really tough. And the others are just like, you know, like wimps. You know, they're like really soft and gentle and loving, and you can't do no wrong in their eyes. And others, you know, they stare at you, and you're like, and just different personality types, you know, the, the, the enlightenment is the same, but different personality types express it differently. So, why is it today we never hear the lion's roar? Wouldn't it be a great encouragement to the world, to others, on this path? And then the second one here is, what is stream entry? How is it recognized by oneself and others? So, uh, why don't, uh, I think there are certainly plenty of people who have tasted enlightenment, uh, enlightenment of the Buddha. And we'll be, uh, Jack will give a talk on this uh, later in the retreat uh, on the topic of enlightenment. Um, when I think of enlightenment, one of the, one of the associations that I have very uh, quickly is I think of the kind of pristine sweetness that is in everybody. And so rather than thinking of enlightenment as something that's far removed or separate from who you are, it's somehow there's some sweetness that's already there within you and um, some beauty that's right there. And so then it's somehow tapping into that or touching it. Historically, there's been a shyness, a reluctance for people to um, uh, say publicly that they had some experience of enlightenment. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is in the monastic tradition, which often we try to, some people, we sometimes model ourselves after. Um, Monastics are not allowed to tell lay people about their attainment. So, you know, if lay people hang around monks, you'll never hear them say, oh, you know, this is what happened to me. Um, And also there's a kind of humility that's built in, you know, with practice and kind of to stand up and say something about oneself is, is a little bit, you know, presumptuous perhaps. So sometimes there's kind of a shyness in talking about it. And sometimes also it sets up uh, all kinds of problems for people. Then people are um, chasing after it and they feel like their, their self-worth as a human being is dependent on getting enlightened. Human being is not dependent on your enlightenment at all, so please get that straight. <laughs> and. Um, 
and and so there's there's this comparison and there's competition and and I remember there was a woman in in uh, Burma, American, who um, had what's the first stage of enlightenment, which is called stream entry, and um, and an American man who was there, who I talked to a little bit when I was there, got wind, heard about this woman's attainment, and he got all, oh. It couldn't be. I know her. I knew her back in California. It can't be. <laughs> so there's a lot of unhealthy things that happen around this whole concept. So a combination of all those things, it's you know, often better not to talk about it and let it be um, kind of by itself. But there are people who get enlightened, and there are people who don't get enlightened. Uh, when uh, a local Zen teacher, Lou Richmond, asked Zuki Roshi, if in doing Zen practice, whether he would get enlightened. Uh, Suzuki Roshi's answer was um, something like, uh, it might be, uh, uh, but if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. Isn't that beautiful? So there's something about the nature of practice and engaging in practice wholeheartedly which, uh, you know, is almost as good, almost as sweet as enlightenment. And so it's probably enough just, just to be able to practice in one lifetime. It's just a, such a blessing, such a wonderful thing that, um, you know, it just, it just it's, it's, it's like one of the most amazing things for someone to be able to practice. And um, if, you know, they, you can get a little bit of cream on top of the cake, that'd be good. But, uh, you know, the fact that you found practice, you know, that's enough. So stream entry is the first stage of enlightenment. And the Buddha ten, tendency was to define enlightenment by what was absent, not by what was present. And many of us are looking for the enlightened experience. Is it the right experience? You know? and, um, and rather, the Buddha tended to define it by the absence of greed, hate, and delusion, or different forms of it. And then uh, once that's absent of someone, then they can live their lives according to their personality and their temperament and the conditions of their times. And different people will make different choices and their lives might look radically different from other people's lives um, uh, because what they fill that emptiness with is very different. The emptiness of being without greed, hate, and delusion. So hopefully that's enough. How does grief relate to, looks like Mara, I can't read the handwriting for sure. Maybe it's Metta, but I think it says Mara. Just to talk a little bit about grief itself. What I spoke the other night about the three characteristics, Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, One of the gates for awakening for all of us is the recognition of dukkha, of the suffering of the world and of our own life. And somehow in recognizing and sensing it deeply, there grows instead of the idea, well, we can get pleasure and avoid pain, the very deep realization that this is the way the world is, woven with light and dark and pleasure and pain and birth and death and joy and sorrow, and a deep liberation comes. 
In that process, there is often quite deep grief for our losses. And in some ways, I think of it as a kind of sacred grief. When people here are feeling their grief or weeping, suffering, there is in the Native American tradition, in the Lakota, they consider someone who is grieving to be particularly wakan, particularly holy. And so someone who is in deep grief, they will go to and ask to be prayed for that by that person because that grief carries a connection to the gods, to that which is sacred. And there's a beautiful story of the Buddha teaching a group of people whose hearts were ambitious and closed. And he told them one of the many animal parables that the Buddha used to teach about this great uh, elephant that had been captured in the forest and was going to become the head of the king's army as the royal war elephant or whatever the king had, the royal ceremonial elephant. And even though this was a great noble being like the king himself in this story, the elephant wouldn't do it. The elephant would refuse to put on the elephant garb and do the ceremonial things, it simply wouldn't do it. And finally in the story, they called an old sage, I guess it was kind of like you'd have in Marin an animal psychic or something like that, and they talk to the elephant. And it turned out that the elephant's old mother had been living still alive in the forest where the elephant was caught. And the elephant's old mother was nearly blind. And so this elephant, her only son, had been gathering fruits and berries and taking care of his mother. And when he was found in the forest and chained and forcibly brought to become the noble elephant at the head of the king's procession and army, he simply couldn't do it. His heart was broken because he had to take care of his old and blind mother. And when the king heard this, he went and bowed to the elephant and had his uh, soldiers take the elephant back and release it to the forest and said, do what you have to do to care for your family and when you are ready, return and we will work together. And then the Buddha goes on, or the story goes on. Um, as, As the Buddha told this story, it said those around him whose hearts had been hard began to weep. And by virtue of the softness of their hearts, they became ripe, to hear the teachings of the Blessed One. And then in those soft hearts, he placed placed the truth of the Four Noble Truths for them to listen to. And as is always so in these stories, they became enlightened and lived happily ever after. (laughs) So um, I really respect the grief that comes in meditation because it's part of what opens us to tenderness and care for ourselves and compassion for other beings who are suffering. Um, And I see it then as a gateway to that which is holy. And um, I don't know how Mara relates to grief, um, I suppose. I actually don't know. I'll have to reflect on that. But I, I consider it to be something Even when someone, we're sitting in the hall and someone starts to weep, which will happen, um, often the people around them 
that person will go, ah, you know, they'll hear it, and it just touches the heart in some way. And everybody's compassion, which is there in you, was your birthright, starts to be touched and spring forth. Enough? Do you want one more? No? Hmm? Seemed like enough. It was always enough. It was always enough. (laughs) It was enough before we started. (laughs) (laughs) The questions are really beautiful questions. What is enlightenment, or how do you live, or teach your children, or what is karma, or grief? How does one work with this, and so forth? And I was really struck by the sincerity and the honorable quality of the questions. Um, And I think it just comes from the sincerity of our practice together. It's quite beautiful. And I would say, just to piggyback on the question of enlightenment from what Gil spoke of, that uh, you are getting enlightened. You really are. And you can feel it yourself. You know it. I mean, you also know the moments when you're not. But then there are those moments where it's like the spell breaks. Oh, I was really caught in that. And here we are, just again, in this mystery of the present. And I just really want to bow to you for that. Anything else? Well, there's one thing that occurs to me sitting here. When I finished answering questions about enlightenment, some, there's sometimes a confusion that um, because liberation in Buddhism is a freedom from attachments, a freedom from clinging, that somehow then it's inappropriate to want enlightenment, um, that you're supposed to let go of that. That's just one more kind of clinging. But the desire for enlightenment, uh, any kind of desire, does not have to entail clinging. It can be very open, spacious. You know, this, be, this is the direction I'm going, what I'd like. Uh, Dharma willing, uh, and in fact, um, uh, sometimes to sh- shut down the motivation for enlightenment or for freedom or for liberation from suffering is to do a kind of disservice to ourselves. And I believe there. Are, I believe it's kind of like Gill's, you know, folk wisdom <laughs> that um, that uh, as a person practices in practice for whatever, for whatever reason they practice. At some point in the practice, um, there becomes kind of a biological urge for liberation, and um, you know, so, so it's like the teaching, like what I said about the anatta and not self. Um, you can just let the not self reveal itself to you as you practice carefully. So the same way, the the, the motivation for enlightenment, you can just let that reveal itself to you at the right time. It'll it'll surface within you. Because I think deep inside there's a biological urge to liberation. 
And then to say no to that urge, I think, is to do a disservice to ourselves. And I've seen people who felt, oh, no, I can't do that. That's not right. Or they felt unworthy. Who am I to, to have that lofty kind of pursuit? Um, but certainly, um, uh, uh, awakening is a possibility, and it's something that hopefully all of you have had some sense of, but it's something that all of you can also um, uh, at some point direct your, pra- your practice quite wholeheartedly towards it. Thank you. Thank you for your questions and your practice and your laughter and your sincerity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.